Don't just read, absorb. Don't just think, ponder. Here's a quote. Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, we define entire epics of humanity by the technology they use. And this is by Reed Hastings, who's the co-founder and chairman of Netflix. Mm, interesting quote. Yes. What about this one? The problem with books is that they end. Mm-hmm. By Carolyn Kemps, which is, yes. you know, quite apt for our new, our end of uh, podcast. So mm-hmm. hello and welcome to Julia and Maureen's podcast. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on our last podcast of the book Invisible Women by Carolyn, Caroline Prado Perez. Well, Maureen, what a journey it's been. And we have really enjoyed it, sharing our thoughts, opinions, as well as extracts and stories from our reading of the book. And, of course, all the research we've done, Maureen. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's been quite a journey, but we have enjoyed it. And this episode is our conclusion to the book Invisible Women, as Julia said. And we have learned so much from reading this book. It really is superbly written and discusses, discusses sorry, the data available and it questions the data that is unavailable and worse still, the data not collected. It is definitely a recommended read, wouldn't you say, Julia? Definitely. And Maureen, our friends have bought it, friends have read it, mm-hmm. but still listening to the podcast some are reading, listening to the chapters and then reading the book. So it's really great that friends have taken it on board. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And for those who still have the book and haven't read it, after this last episode, get reading. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And our quotes, as Julia said, they serve to remind us or question what age are we living in, along with acknowledging the end of this book. During this episode, we will discuss the final chapter, Natural Disasters, and some chapters we did not explore fully with you, but have selected poignant, noteworthy extracts that we believe need to be shared, haven't we, Julia? We have. Looking forward to it, Maureen. But listeners, a reminder, Through Our Eyes is a podcast based on our thoughts and our points of view. Acknowledge that not all listeners may agree with our content, But by accessing this podcast, note that the information, opinions and recommendations are for your general information only. Okay, thank you for that, Julia. No problem. So let's get started, Maureen. Yes, yes. Mm, Now, agriculture and women. Mm, What's the story with that then? Well, it's her story. It's where inequality developed its roots. What are the effects of ploughing versus hoeing? Traditional stoves versus clean stoves? What happened? And did you know the stoves can literally kill you? And should you survive a disaster, it's the injustices that can kill you. Wow, okay, there's a lot to cover there, isn't there, Julia? Mm, There is more rain today. Yeah, so... um... We've mentioned ploughing, hoeing, stoves, there's something on toxic fumes, natural disasters, wars, refugees. Where do we start, Julia? Mm. Yes, we're going to start with an article in The Guardian from 2011, and it's about the root of inequality. 
Our inequality actually derived from whether our female ancestors ploughed or hoed. Yes, that's where it's come from. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so let's think. Before we can pick our produce from the vegetable or fruit tiles in supermarkets and go to farmers markets, we need to consider the effects of agriculture on women. We can all put on our rose-tinted specks and think it would be nice to grow our produce and sustain ourselves, which, and many of us do grow herbs and root vegetables. But the reality, Julia, is the women who did and do work in agriculture, it is their lives. And producing products, raising children and earning an income but even if we were to address these gender data gaps, as Caroline states, we still would not know how much of the food on your table is produced by women. Mm, interesting. Mm. Interesting. I mean, let's discuss the issues and what it means to them and us, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, Caroline cites endless reports, articles, briefing papers that include some variation on the claim that women are responsible for 60 to 80% of the agricultural labour supplied on the continent of Africa. That's quite high. It is. You know, but unfortunately, little evidence. Mm. I mean, this statistic has been traced to a, a 1972 United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. And it's not that it's wrong. It's just that we can't prove it one way or the other. Because, yeah. We lack the data. Data again. Data again. I mean, the questionable data is partly because men and women often farm together. Therefore, it's difficult to accurately determine how much of the labour, be it male, female, actually goes into producing an end food product, Maureen. Okay, so we're not sure about the 60 to 80% stats, but um, it's still questionable who yeah, is mm. producing food product at the end of the day but Julia what we do know um, there was a Danish economist called Esther Busrup um, that first came up with the plow hypothesis that explored that these societies would be less gender equal okay that sounds plausible um, they found that consistent with existing hypothesis the descendants of pre-industrial societies that practice plough agriculture today have lower rates of female participation in the workplace or in politics or in entrepreneurial activities, as well as having attitudes that reflect gender inequality. So in short, these views have not changed over generations for these communities. Um, that's where the stereotypical understanding of our roles has pretty much come from. Right, that's the, the root of it all. Mm. I mean, to understand it better, Maureen, women often played a significant role in tending to the land in the past. Uh, but when the ploughs were introduced in various regions across the world, men were then placed at an advantage. Working with the ploughs and the animals that were used to pull them required strength and force. You know, yeah. women perhaps didn't have that. So Caroline explores the theory of using handheld tools like hoes or digging sticks, as opposed to the powerful animals like a, a horse or an ox. Mm, okay, so like you said, Julie, we know that plough requires significant upper body strength 
to control the animals and to pull the plow. And men's upper body strength tends to be 40 to 60% higher than women. Mm. Women also have a 40% lower grip strength than men. And this does not change with age. Now, this surprised us, you know, mm. the typical 70-year-old man has a stronger grip than a 25-year-old female. Wow. Mm. Didn't that that surprised me, Maureen. I didn't mm. I didn't realise that, you know. No. But um Alberta Alcina, Paolo Giliano and Nathan Nunn uh, in April twenty eleven, they produced a paper uh, which really seeks to understand the historic origins of current differences in norms and beliefs about wait for it, the appropriate <laughs> role of women in society. <laughs> Have an appropriate role. Yeah. What a title. Yeah. Now, that is a term. The appropriate role of women. They actually test the hypothesis that traditional agricultural practices influence the historic gender division of labour and the ev evolution and the persistence of gender norms. Quite a mouthful, that. But mm -hmm. now, if that's correct, and we believe it is, our roles, listeners, were create, created way before we realise and has moulded society in our stereotypical thinking, which is what you highlighted earlier, Maureen. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it is about, you know, it is about the ploughing versus the hoe. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we've given you, listeners, a flavour of the origins of the plough versus the hoe and its creation of the gender norms. Yeah, well, yeah, so we're going to move on, aren't we, Julia, now? And um, we know that the roots to our inequality, um, we want to move on to a noteworthy story of clean stoves in the developing world. And this section is titled, The Stoves Can Kill You. And here's what Caroline found. Humans, as Caroline states, meaning women, have been cooking with three stone fires since the Neolithic era. Not much thought needed, really. It is, as it states, three stones on the ground on which to balance a pot, fuel needed, wood or whatever you can burn. Mm. And as Caroline states, she shared that in South Asia, 75% of families are still using biomass fuels, you know, wood, other organic matter, for energy. Mm. Uh, in Bangladesh, the figure is as high as 90%. Wow. In sub-Saharan Africa, biomass fuels are the primary source of energy used for cooking for 753 million people. That's 80% of the population. Wow, that's a huge percentage, isn't mm. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but what we did find, Julia, was the problem with traditional stoves is they give off toxic fumes, which they would. And a woman cooking on a traditional stove in an unventilated room is exposed to the equivalent of more than 100 cigarettes a day. Wow. wow. That's a lot. Yeah, and there was a paper in 2016 um, in countries from Peru to Nigeria, toxic fumes from stoves are between 20 and 100 times above the World Health Organization guideline limits. And globally, they cause three times more deaths. Wow. 2.9 million every year, listeners. That's more than malaria. 
you'd have to say that was terrible. That you? is awful. That's frightening. But this is all made worse by the inefficiency of traditional stoves. Noreen, women who cook on them are exposed to these fumes for three to seven hours a day. Well, which long... means that worldwide, indoor air pollution is the single single largest environmental risk factor for female mortality and the leading killer of children under the age of five. Oh, no. It is terrible, isn't it? I mean, this pollution is causing respiratory and cardiovascular damage, as well as an increased susceptibility to infectious illnesses like TB, lung cancer. I mean, it's just awful to read. It is. That's just terrible, isn't it? So, you know, um, you mentioned about the indoor pollution, Julian. It is one of the top 10 global disease burdens. However, as in so often the case with health problems that mainly affect women, as Caroline states, these adverse health effects have not been studied in an integrated and scientifically rigorous manner. So they still are doing the studies on this that could alleviate some of these problems. Collecting data. Yeah. You know, the initial drive for clean stoves was to address deforestation rather than to ease women's unpaid labour or to address the health implications for women and children from the use of these stoves. So that, that, that it wasn't a priority. And no. That's sad, but it's so true. The stoves were not really introduced to help women. No, it wasn't. And they're saying it was about deforestation. And so it, it didn't matter about the health uh, problems that they're creating for these women and not addressing mm. them. Wow. Yeah, so, but, you know, um, Julia, we do, we do know that the development agencies have been trying to introduce clean stoves since the 1950s, and they've had varying levels of success. However, when it came to light that the environmental disaster was in fact driven by clearing land for agriculture rather than by women's collection of fuel, most of the development industry simply just dropped their clean stove distribution initiatives. So it's like, okay, it's not really yeah, yeah. going to help deforestation, so we'll just drop we'll it. Drop not it, jeepers. Yeah, but, you know, they are back on the agenda. So well, that's came, good. Yeah, they came back on the agenda. And Emma Crew, she's an anthropologist at SOAS University of London, and she explains that clean stove initiatives were deemed to be a failure as a solution to the energy crisis and not relevant to any other development area. And in, 19, in the 1990s, Emma was informed by stove technicians that the low adoption was because users came from a conservative culture. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And listen to this, listeners. They needed educated and proper stove usage. Again, <laughs> we are the problem, Julia. Women are still being blamed in the 21st century. I just like smiling all the way through listening to you saying that, you know. Oh, jeepers. I mean, a t 2013 report on user experiences of five stoves in Bangladesh repeatedly acknowledged that all five stoves increased cooking time and required watching. I mean, this prevented women from multitasking as they would with a traditional stove, and it forced them to change the way they cooked, again, increasing their workload. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, nevertheless, the main and repeated recommendation of the report was to fix the women rather than the stoves. You've got to laugh at it because you just think, just fix the stoves. Why have we got to be fixed? We're the one using the stoves. Fix the stoves. Oh, it's just a joke. I mean, the women needed to be educated on how great the improved stoves were rather than stove designers needing to be educated on how not to increase women's already 15-hour average working day. Yeah, you're right. Jeez, I like, yeah, we can just add more hours to our day. Our days aren't long enough. Oh, those men and their stoves, that's all I can say. Oh, dear. Well, we're going to move on and let's get started, Maureen, on chapter 16, Mm -hmm. which is the final chapter. And it's it's not the disaster that kills you, which covers some very tough and sensitive subject matter. Mm-hmm. We're going to start with the data on the impact of conflict, whether it's mortality, morbidity, forcible displacement. But the impact of conflict on women is extremely limited and sex disaggregated data even rarer. But the data we do have suggests that women are disproportionately affected by armed conflict. Mm. And while men and women suffer from the same trauma, forcible displacement, injury, death, women also suffer from female-specific injustices. Yes, they do, don't they? And um, we're going to tell you about these specific injustices because they include rape and domestic violence, And Caroline clearly states, domestic violence against women increases when conflict breaks out. In fact, it is more prevalent than conflict-related sexual violence. To put this in context um, for a better understanding, an estimated 60,000 women were raped in the three-month Bosnian conflict and up to 250,000 thousand jeez in the hundred day rwandan genocide those numbers are horrific maureen aren't they and the un agencies estimate that more than sixty thousand women were raped during the civil war in sierra leone and that was between 1991 to 2002 more than forty thousand in liberia you know, that was 1989 to 2003, and more than 200,000 in the Democratic Republic of the Congo since 1998. But because of the data gaps, apart from anything else, there is often no one for women to report to. And we know about this, Judy, as we've Mm. before, haven't we? And the real figures in these conflicts are absolutely likely to be much higher. I can imagine the numbers are high enough, but I I wouldn't be surprised if you could add, you know, or perhaps double in some cases, you know. I mean, in the breakdown of social order that follows war, women are also more severely affected, apart from all the rape incidents you've just mentioned. Mm. Levels of rape and domestic violence are extremely high in post-conflict settings as demobilised soldiers, fighters, those people who are trained to use force confront gender roles at home or frustrations of unemployment with violence. Yeah, so they take all that training and when they're 
they're out of service and they're back in the home, their first defence is violence. Mm. No one has high domestic violence and rape cases. Jeez, but... But before the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, um, the average age for marriage for a woman was between 20 and 25, okay? And in the refugee camps, during and after the genocide, the average age, wait for this, for marriage became 15 years old. 15. Frightening. Frightening because they were pregnant girls, you know? Uh, further to this, women also have high rates of maternal mortality. Women are more likely than men to die from the indirect effects of war. More than half of the world's maternal deaths occur in conflict-affected and fragile states. And as Caroline found, the 10 worst-performing countries on maternal mortality are all either conflict or post-conflict countries. Whether maternal mortality is two and a half times higher and this is partly because post-conflict and disaster relief efforts too often forget to account for women's specific health care needs yeah so you're not getting any health care while you're going through these conflicts so yeah. trauma yeah so mater- yeah i can believe the maternal mortality would be higher mm. We also read and concluded that we need to address the gender data cap when it comes to post-disaster relief with some urgency because there is little doubt that climate change is making our world more dangerous. And it's real. According to the World Meteorological Organization, it's nearly five times more dangerous than it was 40 years ago. Between 2000 and 2010, there were... 3,496 natural disasters from floods, storms, droughts and heat waves compared to 743 natural disasters in the 1990s. So climate change is real and it is affecting our planet. Massive, massive. And I think over this um, period of time during um, the lockdowns and the COVID pandemic, the Mm. floods and the snows and you've seen it constantly on the news so we're seeing it's increasing dramatically Mm. i mean on the subject of disasters we know that the violence women face in disaster contexts it also increases in the chaos and the social breakdown that happens because of that natural disaster but it also in part because of that chaos and social breakdown we don't know how much exactly. Yeah, that's shocking, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And we do have um, some accounts from Caroline's book, and you may remember Hurricane Katrina. And during this time, the local rape crisis centres had to close, which meant that in the days that followed, no one was counting or confirming the number of women who had been raped. This was the same for the uh, sorry, the domestic violence shelters that also had to close. Mm, I mean, thousands of people who had been unable to evacuate New Orleans before Katrina hit were actually temporarily housed in Louisiana's Superdrome. But it didn't take long, Maureen, for terrible stories of violence, rapes and beatings to start circulating. 
there were reports of women being battered by their partners. Mm. You could hear people screaming and hollering for people to help them. Quote that is from the book. Mm -hmm. Please don't do this to me. Please somebody help me. One woman recalled in an interview with IWPR. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, there's more quotes. Um, another woman said, they said these things didn't happen at the Superdome. She said, they happened. They, they happened. People were getting raped. You could hear people, women screaming because there's no light. So it's dark, you know. She added, I guess they were just grabbing people, doing whatever they wanted to do. Jeez. Precise data on what happened to whom in Hurricane Katrina has never been collated. The title is fitting because it's not the disaster that kills you. It's how we cater to male, and I'd say more importantly, female needs in this chaos that can kill you. Uh, frightening, absolutely frightening. And Maureen, at the same time as it was going on in New Orleans, New Orleans in Bangladesh, women were experiencing sexual violence in gender-neutral storm shelters. So across the globe, it's happening yeah. because of a natural disaster. Oh, uh, gosh, yeah. I mean, Caroline shocked us with this. I mean, listeners, for women, all right, who tried to escape from war and disaster, the gender-neutral nightmare often continues in the refugee camps of the world. We have learned from so many mistakes in the past that women are at greater risk for sexual assault and violence if they don't have separate bathrooms. Now, that's from mm -hmm. Gore van Gilk, an Amnesty International's Deputy Director for Europe and Central Asia. I mean, in fact, international guidelines state that toilets in refugee camps should be sex segregated and marked and lockable. But listeners, you've guessed, they're not. And these requirements are certainly not enforced. Yeah, and that's just shocking, isn't it? So they're at risk. We've covered this before in mm. three podcasts about women going to the toilets and pairs, etc., because the risk is so high. And research by the Women's Refuge Commission found that women and girls in accommodation centres in Germany and Sweden are vulnerable to rape, assault and other violence because of a failure to provide separate toilets, shower facilities or sleeping quarters. Mixed living and sleeping quarters can mean women develop skin rashes from having to keep their clothes on or hijabs on for weeks. Oh, they just are not feeling safe to take their clothes off in those environments. And Female refugees regularly complain that the remote location of many toilets is worsened by lack of adequate lighting, both on the routes to the toilets and in the facilities themselves. Awful, awful. I mean, it's not unique, though, Maureen, is it? It's <laughs> happening in many refugee camps. Uh, Greece, you know, I think you know about this being living on Greece, the infamous Idomeni camp described <laughs> as pitch black night which had a dramatic impact on women's sense of safety. And we've both read The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Yeah, makes you think of that straight away, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. because even though it's a, it's um, fiction, she, took, she did go to Greece, didn't she? And that's where she got a lot of her research for that book. Yeah, that's another good read for our listeners if they want something to mm. read. Yeah. 
Yeah, a group of um, Yetzi women um, who ended up in near Kavala camp in northern Greece. So after fleeing sexual slavery under ISIS, formed protection circles so they could accompany each other to the toilet to ward off harassment from men. So we've heard a lot about this, what happened in Greece. I mean, others, like 69% in one, I think it was 2016 study, including pregnant women who needed frequent toilet trips, simply didn't go at night. Some even took to wearing adult nappies. And we won't horrify you with the research on women and menstruation in refugee camps. Horrendous. That's, you know, that's another story which is way too much to go into because it's so sad. Um, you know, but as Caroline states, some of the failure to protect women from male violence in European camps can be put down to the speed with which authorities have had to respond to the crisis. Now, we know that because of natural disasters or wars, that people become displaced and they end up being refugees. And yes, you know, the globe has had to cope with an influx of refugees. Yeah. And they, you know, what she's saying is how they respond to it is, um, it's mm -hmm. a matter of resources as well. But this is not the whole story because women in detention centers around the world experience the same problems with male guards. Listen to this. In 2008, a 17-year-old Somali refugee detained at a Kenyan police station was raped by two policemen when she left her cell to use the toilet. Um. How disgusting is that? And there's another, there's a detention centre in the UK called Yarlswood. And this centre has been dogged for years by multiple cases of sexual abuse and assault. It's horrendous, horrific to just listen to that. Yeah. I mean, we did think, well, perhaps sex segregation needs to extend beyond the toilet and shower facilities, didn't we, Maureen? Yeah. Perhaps male staff, no male staff, should be in positions of power over the vulnerable women. I mean, how about that? That would work, surely. Yeah, Let's stop putting men in charge of women who are vulnerable. Yeah, but if that's going to happen authorities would first have to accept the idea that the male officials might be exploiting the women. They're meant to be helping, guarding or processing. Do you know, will, yeah. they, will authorities agree to that? No, because they've turned a blind eye to this and pretending it's not happening. Yeah. It's... I mean, there's a lot more to discuss, including about homeless shelters. But listeners, we will let you read on yourselves. Yeah, definitely. And it is worth reading, isn't it, Julia? So, definitely. Yeah, we're going to end with a quote. It's become quite a sad ending to this mm. book. Yeah. Uh, we're going to end with a quote from Caroline. And she says, closing the gender data gap will not magically fix all the problems faced by women, whether or not they are displaced. That would require a wholesale restructuring of society an end to male violence, but getting to grips with the reality that gender neutral does not automatically mean gender equal would be an important start. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so true. But listeners, what have we learned from our reading and research mm -hmm. is that the lack of ambition for women is striking. 
the lack of medical research and healthcare for women is striking. The lack of data and women being counted, striking. Yeah, and you know, Julia, the lack of acknowledgement for our contribution to our world and economy as a woman is striking. Who can explain when and if this will ever improve? No one. Now, that is striking. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're blinded by the details, which, which meant we're accepted our gender roles. But now we see. No longer are we blind. Yeah, absolutely. And as... Marie Curie once said, I never see what has been done. I only see what remains to be done. And that's where we will end. And thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that is our end of podcast and the end of a book, listeners. You know, thoughts and opinions on the book of Invisible Women we've shared with you. Maureen, thank you. Thank you, Julia. And yeah. We have learned so much, whether it's been about people, BPA, EDCs, transport, brilliance, GDP, workplaces, <clears throat> uh, politics, sexual harassment, ploughing, disasters, refugee camps, and the development of the stereotypical roles of men and women, or that the stoves can literally kill you. Yeah, gosh, yeah, we've learned a lot, haven't we? Mm, God, when you hear it like yeah. that, yeah, a lot yeah, we've but... taken in. Yeah, and we do hope you've enjoyed sharing our journey of this book, Invisible Women. And don't forget to listen in next week and keep those messages coming. You can email us at through our eyes book discussions at gmail.com, and that's all lowercase, or you can voice message us using the anchor link. And we'd like to say have a good week, listeners, and you, Julia. Yeah, Maureen, have a lovely week. So, oh, I'm excited, Maureen. Our next book, we've started our new, new book. Um, we are listeners, got an, Women Know How to Fight. We are delving into a new book. It's called The Better Half by Dr. Sharon Molan. Mm. And we're going to begin the discussion of the research and findings of an award-winning physician and scientist who makes game-changing case that genetic females are stronger than males at every stage of life. Mm, I'd say here, here to that. Yeah, yeah. So the title again, Women Know How to Fight. So mm. we hope you can um, listen in next week. Have a lovely week, listeners, and you, Maureen. You too, Julia, and stay safe. You Bye. Too. Bye. Bye.